Hi, this is Things That Might Kill Us, a new podcast where we will discuss potential existential threats to humanity in a way that hopefully doesn't depress everyone in the first five minutes, over dinner and drinks. My name is Joe Dobbs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alice Biongala. In every episode, we'll be joined by world-leading experts to discuss some of the biggest challenges we face today, from nuclear weapons to artificial intelligence, climate change and pandemics. If it gets dark at times, know that we do try to end on a positive note, so do bear with us. But before we start this episode, if you enjoy it, please remember to give us a good rating. With episodes one and two firmly in the national security field, this episode of Things That Might Kill Us will be the first of several that explore environmental and health crises. Next up, episode three on air pollution. Amid the July London heatwave, the London mayor triggered the high pollution warning issue and called air pollution a public health crisis. London is one of the most polluted cities in Europe, exceeding by far legal limits set by the EU air quality standards. But air pollution is actually far worse in emerging economies. Just think about China, India or Egypt. And more of 90% of air pollution-related deaths happen in low-medium income countries, mainly in Asia and Africa. So there is a clear air pollution inequality, a divide between the richest and the poorest nations. But this is also mirrored by demographic and social inequalities, as not everyone is is affected by air pollution the same way. The air quality problem is one of the highest on the environmental and social agenda today. It's been called a major public health crisis and a global pandemic underway. To discuss it today, Joe and I are joined by Douglas Booker, a PhD candidate at Lancaster University, whose research focuses on environmental justice and air pollution. And he's also the founder and CEO of NHQTS, which is a social enterprise that makes air pollution monitoring technology. Doug, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Joe? So I think, first of all, because Alice and I are not specialists in the field. Really not specialists in the field. And to be honest, for the last couple of days, we've been reading about this and both messaging each other on WhatsApp, sort of going, oh God, this is actually... Like really, really frightening. Frightening. Because I think we've been working very much on things that might kill us. And it turns out this is something that's already killing us. So first of all, what is air pollution? Well, yeah, I mean, that's quite a frightening introduction, which probably fits well with the title of this yeah. podcast. Exactly. <laughs> just jump right in. I think what Joe and I were talking and saying, actually, just by obviously by living, we're dying very slowly. But well, what is air pollution? It's a mixture of chemicals and particles in the air, which are either present or introduced, whether that be through heating your home or driving your car and things like that. So it's quite a broad concept. I think we'll go into a bit more detail of what exactly mm-hmm. some of the nuances are, but it's, as I said, it's quite a broad topic. And I mean, so just to avoid confusion, because I think when people talk who aren't environmental specialists think about any environmental issue, they try and tie it back into climate change, which is obviously mm-hmm. the one that gets all the airtime. Is this related to climate change? Is it the same thing? What, what is the difference? Well, yes, they are inextricably linked. Um, if we think of some of the sources, they're the same thing. So you can take a motor vehicle. It's putting out air pollution, which is damaging people's health, but it's also putting out greenhouse gases, which are causing the planet to, planet to warm up. So these things are, aren't the same thing, but actually they're coming from some of the same sources and having the same effects. But it would be true to say that we've had, you know, we've had pollution crises throughout history yes. that haven't necessarily come at the same time as a global climate crisis. You know, pandemic or crisis that we're facing at the moment. So, in the UK, I know that you've been telling us before about um, you know big problems in the 1950s. We also had big problems in the 19th century. So, this is a much more acute sort of acute problem that is resulting from 
you know, simple emissions rather than, um, rather than you know, a global problem? Well, I'd say it's a bit of both thing because, quite frankly, air pollution is a problem without a passport. And we'll talk about some of these, um, what you call foreign emissions coming over to, to different countries. And that's mm-hmm. something which the UK population moan about a lot with emissions coming over from Europe. But um, no, I'd say they're, they're, they're closely linked, probably more than people imagine, climate change and, so and s- air pollution. So does that mean that the worst air pollution gets the worst climate change? Well, of course, it's more complicated than that, but some of the same climate drivers are also acute air pollution issues. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, some of these particles, really small bits of black carbon, organic material that come out of the tailpipes of cars. We know that they're bad for health. They get deep into the lung, cause inflammation, which can cause lots of different dangerous diseases. But we also know that they're actually absorbing sunlight, Okay. which of course is going to have a heating effect, especially in urban environments like London, which mm-hmm. we've been experiencing recently. So where, where is this problem most um, present? I mean, Alice at the start mentioned um, that London is one of the most polluted cities in Europe, but obviously it pales into comparison to some of the big cities in, in China, for example. So where is this problem the most present? Well, you, I mean, the easy answer is to say urban environments, mm-hmm. um, and that'll be the world over. But I think we have to be a bit more nuanced in what we mean by air pollution issues here. Actually, some of the largest causes of air pollution issues across Europe are simply Saharan dust sand being blown over into Europe. So we have to first off define our terms on, well, what pollutants are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Because issues will be different for different pollutants in different places. So pollutants can be natural, it can be just exactly. sand so, from the desert. Yeah. Yes, you can have these organic pollutants, which are coming from volatile organic compounds coming off rainforests, so these chemicals which are in gas form at room temperature, but also anthropogenic emissions, those ones which are coming from human activity. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the biggest problem and the reason why we're talking about a big health uh, crisis today is more man-made air pollution, yes. as I understand yes. it. Yes, yes. And can you maybe just talk a little bit about the difference between indoor and outdoor air pollution? Well, of course. I mean, the the public debate is obsessed with outdoor air pollution, and of course that's important. And I think that largely comes from uh, our perception of where the air quality issues are. Mm-hmm. But actually, the work I do with NAQTS, we're interested in raising awareness of indoor air pollution air quality. Uh, we spend 90% of our time indoors, so if we're trying to raise awareness of potential health issues... Actually, what's happening inside the school, the workplace, the home, inside a vehicle becomes very important. Mm-hmm. So the World Health Organization says that of the 8 million people um, that died, or potentially have, have died prematurely because of air pollution. Um, every year. Every year. Mm-hmm. 4.2 million of those come from outdoor pollutions um, and 3.8 million from, from household smoke indoor pollution. Yeah. Um, so it's very much, you know, it's, almost, it's quite fairly evenly balanced between those two things? Well, I have, a, I have a view that I think this is coming off the best available data, but there are very large data gaps. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of monitoring information inside homes and public spaces, so I'd probably fear that that num- number's larger. Traditionally, the World Health Organization, in their work they're doing on what they call actually household air pollution, is looking at low-to-middle-income country, mm-hmm. uh, low middle countries that are burning biomass, whether that be dung, mm-hmm. coal, wood, and these really cute problems you can see go into a, a house in rural Tanzania and the, the walls will be black with the smoke. But actually, the, these problems exist in higher economic developed countries as well, like the UK, and that comes from furnishing materials and 
ventilation when mm. we cook. I guess the difference is that we don't see it. It's sort of an invisible problem. Yes. Whereas maybe in a household, a rural household in Tanzania, if you know families sort of burn uh, wood or charcoal uh, in open cook stoves to cook, mm. then you would sort of see the pollution. But in our flats in big cities or wherever in Western Europe, we just don't see the air pollution. So it's, it's harder to be aware that it's a problem. Yeah, and I think it's further complicated by the simple fact of what's outside comes inside as well. Mm. And there's a wealth of research from people that are trying to quantify actually what the relationship is between inside and outside air quality. You think if you live close to a busy road, well, quite frankly, it's most likely that some of that traffic pollution is going to come inside your home. So how does this compare historically, and and is it getting better or worse so both in the short you know in the last 10 years has it gotten any better or and you know how, how are we comparing to like we were talking about before the 1950s well I'd say I, th- I think there is good news things aren't getting better um, everywhere think, or just well no okay this is certainly speaking from yeah. a UK perspective um, on a global scale um, it's very difficult to make a judgment because certain places will be getting better, some worse. You can think in these developing countries like China and India, mm-hmm. where it's quite difficult for them to reconcile sustainable growth and actual economic growth. You think these are problems which Western Europe went through hundreds of years ago and had these pea soup smogs like they did in London in the 50s, where it was like walking around, well, smog, smoke and fog. Mm-hmm. You couldn't, these are the problems you see in Beijing now. I mean, this was happening in the 50s in London. It was coming from um, industrial plants being located in the city and people all burning coal in their houses. So in the winter, create this lovely agglomeration of toxic particles. And, and so, so do you feel like the way Western countries deal with air pollution is better today or do you feel like it because it was an, a natural transition in our industries and our industries being sort of shipped towards emerging economies so because we got rid of lots of you know factories then by definition we have less air pollution is that the way well i think that worked? a lot of people refer to air pollution as a rich person or rich country's problem mm-hmm. um it's a it's a in a way you're lucky to be to have the resources to fight that issue when some countries are struggling to feed their populations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you think most of the time with the health consequences of air pollution, they're experienced over a lifetime. So for, in Europe, I believe it's the average EU citizen loses nine months of their life which is from prolonged s- which air pollution exposure. Well, it's significant, but if you think of, we're talking mm-hmm. 40, 50 years in the future here, mm-hmm. certain populations in India where they, they're struggling to get adequate supplies to sustainable food but also nine months per you know an average across the eu when you've got a talking about a population of half a billion people mm. um is adds up to an enormous amount of time but also it's yes. not it's not just that they die earlier i imagine it's also that the quality of life exactly. in later years is lower and also both from a personal point of view where you are you know you are suffering but also from a from a state point of view i imagine the health, the, the you know ancillary costs of health, mm-hmm. healthcare for these people. For yeah, it does have consequences mm-hmm. on also societies and healthcare systems, and sort of like when we talk about obesity, it's not mm-hmm. simply a personal issue. It's also sort of like a social issue of healthcare and how your society is doing as a whole. Yes, well, you've touched on the issue perfectly there. It's this issue of both mortality, premature death, but morbidity. Yeah. So it's moving up this health escalator from not at risk to at risk Mm -hmm. and the World Bank have done research on this and tried to put a figure on it because that sticks in people's heads and they estimated that there's a $225 billion lost labour income 
from exposure to air pollution, and five trillion in welfare losses. And actually then, if that's translated over to Europe, you're looking at 1.43 trillion um, mortality cost, mm-hmm. morbidity, 1.58 trillion. And these, these numbers are so large, it's difficult to get your yeah, head it's, around. Yeah, it's hard but to we'll, understand exactly what it means. But do you feel like those... help solve the Eurozone crisis. <laughs> yeah, but that would be a way of solving it. Do you feel like those numbers... Because, I mean, from sort of going through the WHO website and all those figures, etc., it seems like the idea is to put figures to sort of raise awareness and say you may not be able to see physically the problem, but it has implications. And do you think that all those figures actually encourage, you know, policymakers and citizens to be more aware of it? Do you feel like it actually has an impact? Well, I think the average citizen, no. Policymakers, certainly. Um, I think that there's one recent development, we'll probably put this more in the public domain Mm -hmm. um, recently, um, young nine-year-old girl living near a busy road in London, Ella Kissy Deborah, um, is actually the first UK person to have air pollution on their death certificate. Okay, so that means so the that air, air pollution that, was the cause of the motivation. Yes, of and her, her mother fought for a long time to have this recognition because she had asthma problems, and unfortunately, um, this coincided with a high air pollution exposure uh, time and. Actually, the, the link then between air pollution being this abstract thing which causes premature deaths over a life to something which is literally killing people day to day, mm-hmm. especially during heatwave episodes. It's almost, it's almost similar to the way we talk about climate change, isn't it? Where people don't die directly from climate change. Yes. They die from the indirect implications of climate change. Mm-hmm. So if you die in a flood, your cause of death is a flood. But if that flood has been, mm-hmm. has been you know, exacerbated by the effects of climate change... But then, if it's starting to if it's starting to get the recognition that it is killing people now, mm. then maybe we are raising awareness. Mm. But my, you talked before about how um, most most simply put, it, you can consider it in an ur- as an urban issue. Yes. But also, you said that you know want to make sure that it's not just urban. Mm. Do you think that to a degree, I, I've at least I've noticed anecdotally that we are talking about this a bit more, not just because we've been looking at this for the last couple of weeks with in research for this episode. But also, you know, I see it on, I see it in the news fairly regularly, particularly the London news. So, yes. particularly, you know, newspapers like the Evening Standard, the London newspaper, um, and particularly with, you know, London politicians and urban politicians talking about this. Do you think that there's enough awareness of the non-urban air pollution problems, or do people do you think people just assume that this is a big city problem? Or maybe if they live in the countryside, then they're safe from air pollution. Well, well, first off, just to tackle that, I think the first point of, I think you have to say congratulations a bit to the Mayor of London. I think he's done some very good work on promoting, mm-hmm. uh, raising awareness of air quality issues in London. I'd actually probably be a bit more aggressive in my view, thinking that a lot of the general population probably think that this is just a London issue rather than an urban issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there are something like 40 clean air zones in the UK which are operating from Port Talbot to Leicester, uh, to Manchester, to Liverpool, to Newcastle, which all have acute air quality problems. Um, so I think there needs to be more... Uh, more recognition, probably in the national media, that this issue isn't just London. Mm-hmm. Um, urban, yeah, well, certainly. Urban-rural, this is a, a typical divide, which people, I don't think, fully understand some of the scales of pollution that's happening in rural environments that can come from um, farming and agricultural activities. So this is things like ammonia, known to be hazardous to health. But actually, in some of these smaller, sort of peri-urban towns, well, I live in Lancaster, population 100,000, very small, but it's got some urban planning infrastructure which has a one-way system around the town centre, which is always very busy. Mm-hmm. 
and I've not collected the data there myself, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's higher than some areas of London. So we need to understand that there's something called an air pollution hotspot. So this is where pollution is pretty exceptionally bad. So London has them, for example, um, Oxford Street. I mean, that's there's some good issues being raised there by um, Sadiq Khan, but also Brixton Road. So basically what you're saying is that Pollution, air pollution is worse in big cities because you have a concentration of activities and of cars, etc. But that you also have important air pollution issues in medium-sized cities. And that even if you live in the middle of the countryside, if your house is close to a factory, then you also, you're also confronted to air pollution. So basically yes. wherever you are. Well, you it's very are confronted yes. to air pollution. Is, well, is there any way to you know, find one remote island or village where you can go and be sure that you breathe clean air? Or this do you is, think that that's idealistic? This is the whole purpose of this entire podcast series. At least I'm now trying yes. to work out where we need to move Exactly. Safe. safe from all of the so dangers and risks from all the episodes. Yeah. And your, your radius is getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, yeah exactly. Where yeah. You can go. New Zealand's still looking New pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I think Iceland, Iceland as well. Is probably no, they've got that big volcano that yeah, occasionally yeah, spews. So that's also air pollution, right? So that's a natural source, and if you look at, um, for it's just, I couldn't put the figure on it, but there are people who've done these publications, but it's it's like the entirety of the UK's traffic over a year. Okay. Huge climate change forcer as well. But if, if we go back to your point about where could you live, well, this is where I'd probably fit into the narrative of your show, but this is why I'm saying indoor air quality is important as well, and some mm-hmm. of those high sources will still be prevalent. So perhaps you can go outside and it's still likely to be much cleaner air but I think we need to extend the public consciousness to include what happens within our home so so ju- just to conclude that, that that does mean that you do not necessarily get away from outdoor air pollution by being further away from the sources of pollution because because of the wind the currents etc basically pollution gets distributed all around the earth so there is sort of technically there would be no place that would be free of pollution well, that's correct. Well, I think you're much more likely to be in a big city like London to be exposed to high levels. Okay. So, for example, you have something called the urban heat island effect. Lots of people, lots of tarmac, lots of tall buildings, lots of energy use. It's a few degrees warmer than other parts of the UK, mm-hmm. which means certain pollutants, it's a hotbed for them to actually develop. And for our listeners, uh, based on my very basic readings, it does seem like the south hemisphere is generally cleaner than the northern hemisphere mm. so if you do want to be somewhere with cleaner air i would suggest the south pole which is more remote <laughs> so probably has the cleanest air on earth although there are, you know there are probably also, other, other issues there there are but. also no nuclear powers in the southern hemisphere exactly so you know that it's it's probably a safe guess for looking now episode good. three looking pretty good things that might kill us uh, extreme cold or uh, <laughs> next episode how, look just saying house prices in the southern hemisphere are shooting up thanks yeah to this exactly podcast. because of this podcast so we we've touched on this already a little bit but we've talked about how prevalent it is and where it is and what the sort of source is a little bit more on like the impact of air pollution i mean we've Talked that you know maybe between seven and eight million, according to the World Health Organization, are estimated to be dying prematurely, and that levels of premature can extend from an average of nine months in the EU to to maybe you know ten years in some cases, um, and or in the case of of that poor young girl that you were talking about before, mm-hmm. she died at the age of of nine years old. Um, obviously, in London, far 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 below um, what you know happy healthy life we would have hoped for her. What else are the the impacts? So. You know, economic, social, what are we talking about here? Well, let's start, start with health impacts. Um, we know that it's 
um, one of the leading causes of lung cancer worldwide. I mean, the World Health Organization estimated that 25% of all cases of lung cancer mm-hmm. at least have some association to air pollution. Yeah, and 25% of fatal heart attacks. Okay. Yeah, so cardiovascular is one of the, the largest uh, health concerns, but there's also some psychological as well as physiological um, there's some early stage research that's been done to show that actually for neurological development it's harmful. Hmm. Um, carrying on with this fun conversation here, actually um, birth, defects, le- birth defects and low weight from exposure to air pollution, um, strokes. I'm guessing pollution also causes sort of loss of um, crops and has in- yes. impacts on agriculture as well. Absolutely, so environmental consequences as well. So as you're saying, so ozone is particularly harmful to crop yields, mm-hmm. um, which Joe and I were talking about, could possibly you know, lead to some geopolitical issues if we're looking at resources and high ozone effects can make some already scarce resources even scarcer. And we, a lot of people predict that ozone's going to rise as global temperatures mm-hmm. continue to rise. So we always ask our guest, is the theme of the podcast going to kill us? So I was about to ask, is air pollution going to kill us? But we're mostly sort of halfway through the podcast and I just want to say is air pollution already killing us without doubt yeah and do you think it's going to get better or worse what are the big trends well that's a good question um are we getting better at mitigating some of the sources of air pollution yes but I think concurrently there's this separate track which is showing that lower and lower thresholds are some of these key criteria pollutants are known to be hazardous to our health Mm mm-hmm I mean, actually, what's interesting as well, and you look at some of the public policy dilemmas we've had, there's always this unintended consequence. So we develop one technology, we think it does something, and then there's this unintended consequences of something else. And one of those things which has been unintended is the ultra-fine particles. So at the moment, we regulate for particulate matter, these particles in the air, mm-hmm. um, PM10, that's a big particle, that's 10 microns. Oh, slow it down on the science, like, let's okay. not get into too much detail there. I won't go too detailed, so, okay. so 10 microns. Okay. 2.5 microns. And these ultra-fine... Now, obviously, I know what this is. Obviously, but if you could explain obviously. to the listeners at home what a micron is... Who would is. benefit, you know, unlike well, Joe, from an explanation? This is a better explanation. When I go to ultra-fines, these are so small, they're a thousand times smaller than the width of a strand of hair. Okay. okay. So small, you can't see them under any wavelength of light. But they're big by... by... No, so these are, the, these are PM.1. Okay. So you can imagine that's two orders of magnitude, 100 times smaller than what we're regulating uh-huh. at 10. These are so small, they can cross the blood barrier and get into the brain. Okay. Okay, so now, now, now Joe is looking quite scared, proving that he obviously knew what we're talking about right now. Well, it hasn't well. obviously damaged my brain yet. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that's bad. And these are more fre- frequent today? Well... There's been some very successful attempts at mitigating some of these. They're coming from largely from diesel exhausts. So mm-hmm. there's been something called a diesel particulate filter. You put a filter over the tailpipe, and it captures all of these particles. Okay, let's. Are, let, with one di- when you're talking about diesel, I know like if you know for the last, you know, I remember when I was younger and my my dad was buying a car, and we were very much in the era when everyone was being encouraged to move towards diesel. And now people are being told that they need to move away from combustion in general, but also diesel is, while it's more fuel efficient, it is potentially more polluting. Mm. Just could you explain a little bit about how that's gone and, and whether or not it sort of makes me think that if people are being asked to sort of change their lifestyle yes. to, to lower levels of pollution, and if this is a, you know something that everyone needs to be involved in, they're getting kind of conflicting information when it comes to 
if one thing if diesel is both more fuel efficient and more polluting, which is the one that they should care about? So there's a couple of points to that. The first off, and so I'd say, and this is important, is that diesel in itself is not a bad technology. Mm-hmm. I think following the Volkswagen scandal, where Volkswagen were obviously falsifying emissions tests and diesels were 40 times higher than they were supposed to be, has captured the public imagination. It's become the silver bullet is banned diesels. Well, actually, some diesels are cleaner than petrols on the road. So mm-hmm. it's not the diesel technology. The problem is, is that the worst emitters are diesels. Okay. So if we're able to get these worst emitters off the road, that's a quick win. Mm-hmm. But banning diesels is not going to be this silver bullet. The second point is moving away from the internal combustion engine. You think, well, that's great. Less burning of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. The fundamental issue still won't be solved. I'd say the issue is we have too many cars on the road. So if we all move to 100% electric vehicles, actually, and this is when you're braking, this high pressure, high temperature is making the same materials that come out of the tailpipe. Mm-hmm. These tiny, tiny, ultra-fine particles. So it doesn't necessarily solve the problem miraculously? It'll solve some of the problems. Um, so at the moment we know that a lot of diesel vehicles are having problems with nitrogen dioxide, and oxides of nitrogen, which are known to be hazardous to health. So if you think if we move away from burning fuels, that's going to go. But some of these particles, which are known to be very hazardous to health, will still be prevalent. So all in all, it's a very complicated topic. Yes. And there is no simple answer. There is certainly not a simple answer. Okay. Let's move on to discussing air quality, uh, inequality and air pollution uh, distribution. First of all, geographically, the the World Health Organization latest data shows that air pollution uh, inequality between rich and poor countries is rising. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know, Doug, that you have an ongoing project in China. And I think when most people hear about air, uh, air pollution, they think about the smog in big Chinese cities. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the situation in China and the project that you have there? Well, China, it's an obscenely large country, 14 megacities, 14 or 15. So these are cities with 10 million or more people. Mm-hmm. I think it's 150 cities with a population more than a million. So some of the fundamental issues are going to come from there being these large urban environments all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, China's an interesting case because it's so obvious that they have air quality problems. We've seen the pictures of the smogs in Beijing, in Shanghai, and across the country as well, in, in northern China. Mm-hmm. What I think is particularly interesting about China is actually, probably due to their political structure, as soon as air pollution, and it has in the past, become a criteria thing to fix, a key problem to fix, they can solve the problems very quickly. Mm-hmm. So some of the air quality problems around the 2008 uh, Beijing Olympics, 2010 Guangzhou Asian Games... They had huge air quality fixes very quickly. Is it because many of the biggest polluters are state-owned? So they're more easily controlled uh, by the state? It's easier to impose regulation? That would be my assessment as Uh well. We've got to fit. It's a very different political structure to what we have in Western Europe and the US. It's not just control over companies, though. It's also control over people. Because I remember, I I used to live in China, and the way that they were able to to just impose rules on um, where people could drive, where people could uh, emit, there were... There were days on which um, you know entire factories had to shut down, particularly in advance of the um, of the 2008 Olympics, because air, air, um, air quality was something that a lot of the athletes were worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the the just the sheer ability that they have to um, to to sort of push out information into people and tell people when to do certain things. Mm-hmm. But I remember, I mean, just another it's just an anecdotal point, but. 
I was on a flight from uh, from Beijing to Seoul, and there was a seven four seven outside the gate, and I was waiting in the airport, and you couldn't see the seven four seven because of just <laughs> with it, it, 50, 50 feet visibility. It's, I mean, it's it, it's an enormous problem um, in that part of the world, and I. Mm. But the Chinese government published in 2013 its National Action Plan on Air Pollution, and consequently there has been a drop in air pollution uh, in since late 2017, uh, in, in, thanks to measure, measures including a nationwide cap on coal use, ban on new coal burning capacity, use of filters, etc. So would you say that at, at a governmental level, China is actually doing more than some Western countries to tackle air pollution because air pollution is just a problem that you can see over there. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm doing more. I think I think the, the UK and EU government, as well as in the US, are already doing a lot. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they have a more agile political structure which allows them to move fast on some of these issues. And maybe the problem isn't as important, so they don't have to, to start from scratch either. Mm-hmm. But what, I mean, you mentioned the case of uh, Ella Kissy Deborah, the little girl that died in London uh, because mm-hmm. of air pollution. Can can we just say a word about government accountability here? Because that means that people are dying because of air pollution, and air pollution is something that governments need to be handling. Uh, so, do you think that there is a good government accountability? Because, for instance, we know that the the British government has been in breach of EU pollution limits since 2010. Uh, and from the discussion we're having during lunch, other governments in Europe are in the same case. So, I mean, what exactly, as citizens, we should be, you know, holding our governments accountable for? Well, yeah, I think we have a right. Well, we, it's enshrined a right to clean, breathe uh, clean air. Um, I do think we need to fight harder for certain populations who are more vulnerable, who probably aren't able to have their voice heard in certain London environments particularly. You can see that in the case of poor Ella's family. Um, I think there also is a bit of a personal accountability that needs to be done as well. Mm -hmm. So we could say that we need to drive less, and maybe the government needs to take initiative on that to improve public transport links, make them cheaper. There are some uh, interesting policy initiatives in places um, in Germany, where, for example, on high air pollution days, public transport comes free. Oh, we have the same in Paris. It's, a, well, it's so, an interesting yeah. concept. And you think probably the loss of income in transport monies for using whatever it would be, mm-hmm. TfL in London, are probably going to be mitigated by burden on the NHS. But, but I think, you know, at least when you were talking before about the fact that you know, the Chinese action plan on this it sort of got me thinking that there is still a limit to what governments can do when they're weighing up other um, you know, other priorities that they have. So China, for example, is a country going through an economic transition. Um, it is attempting to move away from from heavy industry, mm-hmm. um, including you know coal mining and production. Yeah, actually, um, half of China's pollution, air pollution, comes from coal fired power mm. stations. But they, they, I mean, they have other priorities. So, for example, energy security. Mm. They like they like burning coal because they can produce coal themselves, mm-hmm. and it has a level of security, and it's cheaper. They also have given that it's largely state-owned enterprises that control um, coal and employ millions and millions of people in parts of the in parts of China that don't easily lend themselves to new um, to new industries that are that China is, and social um, uh, businesses that China is trying to to open our service businesses rather so they cannot cut back too much on that because then there would be a, a labor market problem mm. or an economic problem mm. um, so there is a degree to which there are 
short-term economic pro- um, problems caused by um, by attempts to lower air pollution. But as we were talking about before, and I, maybe you can elaborate a little bit, there are obviously long-term economic benefits to to this as well, particularly when it comes to um, you know spending on health in mm. in societies. Mm-hmm. So how much money is uh, obviously we probably don't know, but there's an estimate of how much money we'd be spending on 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 treating people with um, cardiovascular disease caused by this or treating people who've developed adult asthma yeah. even or or um and as you were talking about before the, the crop damage mm-hmm. so there are these things but these things tend to be more long term and governments that have and that might be one of the reasons actually why countries like china who can think a bit more long term because of their lack of democracy mm-hmm. um can potentially sort of force through long term changes that are necessary but and sort of attempt to weather the short term shock well, that's where we have governments that want to be elected mm-hmm. again. And it becomes very difficult for them to put an action plan together which spans over 40, 50 years to create all these improvements. And that's where, as I, I say, weeping, that the EU have been instrumental in helping hold the UK to account there on meeting certain ambient air quality standards. And I hope we continue to abide by them after we do leave the European Union, if we do. Who knows? Yeah, no one knows. That's the big... Maybe we could have an episode about things that might kill us Brexit. Things that might kill us having to constantly talk about yeah, Brexit I in the UK. Yeah. I think that's discussions the, the, about Brexit. Yeah, in the policy community, us. I think we're a little bit uh, saturated at this point. So we talked about the geographic distribution of, of air pollution, but I think one of the things that Alice and I are definitely very interested in, we know that you've worked on before, is about the distribution of air pollution across social groups. Yes. So... You've talked about, um, in your work, environmental justice. Could you just explain a little bit about what you mean by environmental justice and how air pollution fits into that? So environmental justice at its core is about the fair treatment and um, involvement, so meaningful involvement of different communities, whether that's based on um, level of income, social deprivation, race, ethnicity, gender, whatever it is. And what do you mean by uh, meaningful involvement. It means that they can have have a say in what decisions are being made policy-wise in their local area and on a national scale. And fair treatment means that there aren't a certain population that are receiving the brunt of this negative externality. Mm-hmm. So certain populations, are they receiving more air pollution than they're actually emitting themselves? Um, so for populations in London, there's been lots of data on this there does appear to be a correlation between level of social deprivation and exposure to air pollution. What's particularly um, damaging is probably for us and for then communities from a lower income background, the same amount of air pollution is going to affect them worse than it would us. That's mm-hmm. called something called a triple jeopardy. And, and why? Um, so, so the triple jeopardy is what it's saying is a, a lower socioeconomic status is likely to have poorer health, which means the same level of air pollution is going to have more damaging effects. Okay. They're also going to be living in a worse environment, closer to busy roads or polluting sources. So it's sort of a vicious circle. Yes. It's a it's a ex-ante inequality, which is on steroids. It's just a self-fulfilling prophecy of awfulness and unfairness. And, um, oh God, a self-professing... <laughs> that's cheering us up. That's right. good for us. So I... <laughs> but I just... I wonder... Obviously... The ability to also lobby your local yes. government, which I imagine local government is actually where quite a lot of um, of this policy area is is uh, is delivered. Mm. Um, the ability to lobby your local government to help with air pollution um, is probably easier if you are homeowners who are in a wealthier area. Mm. Is that is that my right there? Yes, yes. Which is really unfortunate because it's just ignoring some of the most vulnerable populations in the country. 
Um, we see this in areas closer to, to busy industry where they don't have as much as a say as actually the, the jobs employed and the gross domestic product coming from this company. So I know there was a, there was a study in London a few years ago that, um, that showed that about 400 schools in London, both primary and secondary schools, um, are situated in places where the air pollution levels are an, at an illegal level, mm-hmm. even by, by UK um, legislation. And of those 400 schools, 90%, and I may be getting the figures slightly wrong there, but about 90% of the, um, of the, of the pupils were free school meal pupils, so i.e. pupils from a, a socioeconomic group that are entitled to um, state paid for food, so poorer kids, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so therefore, even as your, our, you know, our society's children are more likely to exist in polluted areas if they are poorer than if they are richer. And that's what's particularly upsetting because it's just another case of unfairness. Um, if you think they're already more likely to have a poorer standard of teaching, um, actually a poorer diet, which means they're going to miss more days at school, um, which is then compounded by exposure to higher levels of air pollution, which likewise is going to miss you're going to miss more days at mm. school and actually have poor health outcomes. And and from from one of your um, sort of research uh, paper I was looking at, it also has an impact on their academic performance. So all in all, air pollution and sort of, you know, academic performance and living in poor areas, does that mean that air pollution affects mostly poor people, whether they are in the West or in emerging economies? Well, it affects us all, but it disproportionately affects those from from poorer backgrounds. But it's not just discriminating based on level of social deprivation. You've if you, we're moving it to a global scale now, and we're talking household air pollution. That's gendered. Yeah, yeah I was going to that's ask you gonna, about it's that. Gonna, it's largely women who are cooking using open these open fires in some of the lower economic developed countries, and with children in the house. Yes. Mostly. So would you say that women and children, maybe older people, because they already have more uh, health issues, are more vulnerable to air pollution as well? Yeah, it's, there's this paradigm of vulnerability and susceptibility and actually it'll be both there they're more susceptible to the effects but actually their lack of um, agency in some cases to be socially mobile mm-hmm. compound that effect so I'm interested in something you've said before about are they you know exposed to the same level of pollution that they create in, is it so it's true in London for example that um that people who are at most at risk of air pollution are also probably the you know the, the smallest producers of pollution themselves. Is that right? Well, they're less likely to have uh, their own private vehicle. They're more likely to take uh, public transport. Um, and an example which I think is quite interesting at the moment is has been you couldn't believe it right now because of the weather, but a huge boom in people with wood burning stoves, which have become this new luxury item for the middle class to yeah. have as a secondary form of heating in their home. I think people feel like they live in a cottage in yes. the part of London and they yes. sort of enjoy that. But you can imagine this, these are the same issues. And the, the, obviously the things that they're burning are much cleaner now than they were in the 1950s with these pea soup smogs. Mm-hmm. But it's just a re-emergence of a similar issue of people not needing to burn wood but burning wood because it makes a nice homely feel. And, that, and the impacts of that are not evenly distributed throughout society. They are not disproportionately damaging people who have... The, you know the most or most at risk of this problem. Well, I think more than that, it, it, it pertains to certain populations who, coming from a middle class background, are able to produce more pollution mm-hmm. and not be punished by it as much. 
So I think to, to conclude here, what we've, at least what I've understood is that air pollution is to a certain extent a part of living in, in an urban environment. Uh, and it's also something that, whether we like it or not, is just a part of life in the, on the planet today. What I would like to, to discuss uh, in this last part of the podcast episode is how worried we should be and mostly what we should and can be doing because we talked about the government level but also just us as citizens. And to start this conversation, I would just like to read uh, sort of a sentence that I found in an interview and it was a doctor in uh, respiratory medicine talking about the, the role that our Western way of living has on the environment and the fact that Westerners and maybe, you know, us around the table and our listeners need to be aware that our lifestyle is actually responsible for all of this. And what he said was that while we breathe relatively clean air, our lifestyle is a burden to the environment and our Western prosperity is built on polluting industries elsewhere in the world. Mm. And these industries actually impact other people's health way more than our own. So... That And the conclusion for me, which I guess would be the same if we're talking about climate change, is also that in the end, if we want things to change, we need to accept that our lifestyle needs to change. Well, I think that's a really, really powerful point. And it just it brings home the example for me of, well, we, we want to have cleaner cars on the road. And Joe and I were talking about this before. And so we, we buy our new car and what happens to the old cars? Well, we mm. ship them to sub-Saharan Africa and it's quite shameful that we're just exporting our own issues to mm. parts of the world which have much more acute development problems that we have a moral obligation mm-hmm. to help with. Um, I think you, were, you were also talking before, um, before the podcast about how there is a, an almost geopolitical aspect to this as well and that this is going to help perpetuate resource scarcity because of something that Alice was talking about, about you know, the damage to crop yields, mm-hmm. and where is it most likely to damage those places, but in places that are largely rural economies. Mm. So again, we're potentially exporting this problem to somewhere in the world where it'll cause a level of instability that will ultimately have shockwaves all around the world, as well as very devastating impacts on local populations there. Well, this is where you both know far more than I do on sources of instabilities in countries but my understanding is that resources are going to become a more and more important reason for conflict emerging rather than we still see lots of ideological based wars but as we move into more and more resource scarcity of whether that be fossil fuels or even food what was quite um striking for me preparing this episode maybe especially comparing it to the first episodes about uh, artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons is that when we talked about nuclear weapons and artificial intelligence, there was this feeling that, you know, there is something that we can do about it. You can protest and talk to uh, to politicians and try to, you know, shape the yeah. debate, etc. And that maybe people aren't aware of the risks. But when it comes to air pollution, and even me as a citizen, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of half ashamed to admit it, but we know how dangerous it is. And I know that I shouldn't be, you know, taking cheap Ryanair flights to go all around Europe, and I should probably, you know, eat less meat and things like that. But that would mean changing our lifestyles. And I think that we know what we should be doing, but we just don't really want to be doing it. And as I say this, uh, Doug and Joe are getting another glass of Prosecco because I think they're aware <laughs> of the fact that at the end of the day, we know the answer. You know, when I was reading about this, it's like cycling more, taking more public transport, um, taking care of our waste system. So we know the answers. You know, there is nothing new about it. It's just, I'm not sure we actually want to do anything about it. Mm. You know, we do have this cognitive dissonance where we 
know ours our way of living is unsustainable yet we still do it yeah um, I myself know that I fly far too often I still do it I've tried to make meaningful reductions to my carbon footprint and my air pollution as well but mm -hmm. nobody's perfect but I think there are lots of little things that can be done which will have a meaningful impact because you know all of these little things do add up mm. so presumably one of the big ones is uh, transport transport so yes as um, you know I feel like I can drink that bottle of Prosecco that presumably was flown over from Italy because I don't have a car. Yeah, which, by the way, is a 7.99 bottle of Prosecco from Waitrose. Oh, yeah, we forgot so to do that Very, very classy. We also <laughs> had um, a halloumi salad and a raspberry tart. Yes, exactly. Um, but we... Yeah, so... Sorry, we... have you know, we, most, people, most people in London don't drive. Mm. They, um, they take public transport um, or they cycle, which is obviously even better. Um, although I'm a little bit concerned about cycling and exercising in the city with it is one of the Extremely most polluted, polluted in, yeah. in Europe. Yeah. But well, just to, to nip that in the bud, the literature um, does suggest that the negative effects of having this, you're breathing in more air pollution, is actually going to be counteracted by the fact that you're exercising. Okay, so, so, we, sh so we should exercise even in a polluted city. So I'm, I'm, yes. I'm reading different literature, Doug, and to be honest, I'm going to go with the literature that tells me that I should not be Yeah, I think that's also what I will London. be going with, but probably not. <laughs> no, but I, yeah, for those who are scientifically minded and care about facts, I think Doug has explained that you should just get out and run. Well, no, I think there, there is a tipping point, but you'd have to be cycling for something like seven or eight hours. Okay. For it to be worth it. No, but anything over that and you'll oh. be disproportionately oh, yeah, a negative. I'm, I'm unlikely to be yeah, for eight hours yeah. in London, so I think we're good. Yes. Okay, so what other steps? We're talking about transportation. Uh, no, no wood-burning stoves. Okay, I can get rid of my wood-burning stove. Okay, I'm guessing increasing biodiversity. Well, I, there's one, I think you've, you've brought up a lot of the key points, you know, eating less meat. Hmm. walking more, taking public transport. But one point I'd like to bring up is actually being a bit more aware of what household consumer products we're using. Hmm. This is something which has only recently made its, made its uh, way into the academic literature and somewhat into the public consciousness that actually, and this comes from a Los Angeles study, where for these volatile organic compounds, these things like benzene, formaldehyde, the principal source was always the tailpipe of the car. And these are important because they're bad for health and they cause other things to, you know, like ozone, to be produced, which mm -hmm. are bad. Um, now it's household consumer products. That so exactly what we're doing in our home. So that's what we use to clean the bathroom. Clean the bathroom. The, the aerosol deodorant you spray on every morning. Well, don't if you're that way inclined. I, I mean, it, it is a heat wave in London, so I hope everyone yeah. is spraying. Yeah, no, there's always right that now. one one chap on the. Yeah, exactly. To be fair, though, I think it's gotten so hot that it's irrelevant. But um, <laughs> that's just my point of view. But these actions we're taking on a daily basis in our home, uh, the bleachers we're using on our toilets, what we're using to clean our our bathrooms and kitchens, uh, personal care products, are having large effects on the urban environments we live in. So we should we should use products that are sort of greener yes basically and at the moment there isn't a european um a well-known european or uk scheme that gives you this information so one thing i'm passionate about is informed consumer choice and this comes through things like labeling schemes you think when, mm -hmm. you, when you buy a car it tells you the miles per gallon its emissions etc etc well actually it'd be nice to have a sticker on a household consumer product which tells you if it's yeah, environmentally friendly or yeah not. and concerning um indoor pollution because that's something that you work a lot on. What can we do to reduce indoor pollution? Talk about the sort of products that we use, but sometimes I ask myself, is it actually making it better when I open the window to you know, ch sort of change the air in the house if it's more polluted outside? 
Well, this is where it's complicated in urban environments. In my house in Lancaster, yeah, I open my windows and it's great. You need to get fresh air in. Uh-huh. Um, if you live on a busy road, maybe don't get the window by the road open, maybe the back window of your garden. Okay, you and that, and that does make in. a difference. It, it depends on the house and lots of different characteristics. Okay. But on, in general, yes. So there's some simple things which people don't do. When you cook, make sure you have your extractor fan on. Mm-hmm. I know that I know that the problem involves knife forget. Yeah. What about candles? Candles bad. I'm all, sorry. All candles. Yeah. Some all are less. Some are less bad. I'm, yeah. I know this isn't an easy yeah, thing tough. to say. Because, sorry, uh, you're making me get rid of my wood burning stove. <laughs> yeah. Your candles. And my candles. The Ryanair flights. The Ryan, <laughs> I do not fly Ryanair. Yeah, other, other airlines are available, but <laughs> if really Ryanair wants really to partner with us, you can contact us. Me, but. Uh, what about so? Could, can people install sort of um, ventilation systems? Is that, yes. is, does that work? Yes, um, and you see lots of schools doing this now, where they're trying to have the best of actually vent, uh, ventilating and filtrating the air. Mm-hmm. And this again goes back into this environmental justice issue because what schools can afford that? Yeah, the wealthy usually schools. the wealthy schools. And this is this is being done in London at the moment. But things, yeah, you've got to you've got to ventilate, you've got to filtrate. Mm. Um, so my last question would be. We know that basically to sort of solve air pollution, I'm not sure solve is the right word, but at least to mitigate the risks and to make sure that it's still killing us, but a little bit less, we as citizens, and especially in the West, need to be more mindful about our lifestyle and reduce our consumption. And we've discussed about what governments do. Uh, I do feel like cities are very involved in uh, fighting air pollution. So could you just maybe say a few words about what big cities around the world, not just in the West, are doing to fight air pollution? Well, does that come from an individual's, company's, government perspective? Because there, there, there is this large C40 initiative, which is yeah. 40 cities across the globe, that are uh, trying to encourage um, more public transport schemes, mm-hmm. um, electrification of the vehicle fleet, and other solutions. But I think a lot of it is coming as well from private industry. Mm-hmm. Actually, the car manufacturers, for, sorry to sort of segue off your point. No, actually, I was going to mention a private sector because we haven't really mentioned the private sector expect the fact that they pollute, but are they also part of the solution? Well, I mean, they have to be. You think how many vehicles there are on the road at the moment. Mm. Um, the car manufacturers have put in some pieces of technology which are actually really reducing some of the pollutant problems. Mm-hmm. Um, even Volkswagen, they have been pretty naughty though. Yeah, what I they've think done. people have you know, stopped trusting them when it comes to diesel. So for, for example, with the diesel, as I said, this diesel particulate filter, a filter over the tailpipe which you know, catches a lot of the particles. For these newest diesel cars, actually in an urban environment, they're a vacuum cleaner mm-hmm. for this type of pollution. Okay, the problem so is, at the same time, good. they're putting out really high levels of nitrogen dioxide. Seems sort of, I mean, my impression, I don't know, Joey, if you agree, is that it's such a complex issue, and also the science doesn't really help, that there is sort of no way out of it. Because yeah. we put out one new tech product that gets rid of one pollutant, but then it creates another. Mm. Well, and, I think, and also a lot of the, the broader issues of trying to, you know, to improve inequality problems in, in our economy, in economies all around the world, is about, you know, building up industries and building up areas that, things that will pollute. Mm. Well, yeah, um, I'd always operate on the precautionary p- uh, principle. Um, there are a lot of cases actually where science can be limiting is because it's been very difficult to establish health effects for anything. Mm-hmm. And this is often used as a proponent for not legislating because there is not definitive proof that X causes Y. Yeah. I'd operate on the principle that it looks like it does, so what harm is it going to do us legislating that? Mm-hmm. So I think, I, I mean, I think we're going to have to wrap up now, but... 
one thing I've taken from this is that this is an environmental issue, but it's also a social justice issue. It is a and also potentially a security issue. And I a think geopolitical that, issue. That this is Alisa and I's first foray into something that isn't definitely national security. And obviously, I'm trying to look at it through a national security lens, and it is a national security problem because we, if the first job of a government is to protect and defend its citizens, and you know, in around the world, seven to eight million of those citizens are dying prematurely because of something that is a solvable problem, a difficult problem, but a solvable problem. I mean, you alone, Doug, today have given several different examples of how we can fix that. This is something that is a national security problem. You know, healthy societies are safer and more secure societies. You know, the resource scarcity that this could cause could help perpetuate further instability and crises in the future on the other areas that Alice and I look at. So I'm more worried than I was when I started, which is always a good sign. Um, but <laughs> which means that our podcast is doing its job, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to, I have a level of, like, I think I've got a finite amount of anxiety I can expend on things. I'm just trying to work out where it's best to place it. And at the moment, you have my attention. <laughs> so, so that's, that's a big well, I, bravo. I, I'm not for interested you, in scaring people because I think there are small things that we can do to minimise our exposure and actually reduce how much we are putting out. So one thing I didn't mention is um, there's some great resources for London. If you go on London, London Air, run by King's College London, real-time air pollution map of the whole city. So, for example, you can know, I'm going to walk to the pub, which is the best way for me to walk. Well, you shouldn't walk along the busy road. That's, mm-hmm. Most of the time, that's going to be bad. If you walk down the side streets, you minimise your exposure. Mm. There's lots of little things you can do. To sort of building reflexes. Yeah, building reflexes, which will just... And where else, where else should, should our listeners go if they want to learn more about this? Well, you can come on our website, www.naqts.com. We've got some simple tips to help you improve your indoor air quality, which I think is quite important, but actually mm-hmm. to give you some education on what some of these different pollution sources are. Um, the BBC also has some excellent resources on air pollution. The WHO, the WHO, World Health yes. Organization, has uh, data from all over the world and a, a map about air pollution uh, throughout the world so you can sort of see how your own region is being uh, impacted by air pollution. And Alice and I will tweet out all of the links to everything that Doug's mentioned and to the few resources that we've been looking at. And you can uh, you can find us on Twitter at, at Things That Might. And on you can email us at thingsthatmight at gmail.com. You can speak to me directly at Joseph underscore Dobbs. And Alice is on... I think it's Alice Billon. Yeah, they get rid of the second part of my last name. But yeah, just reach out to Things That Might and I'll, <laughs> I'll get in touch. Anyway, from, uh, from both of us and on behalf of all of our listeners, Doug, thank you very much. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Things That Might Kill Us, a podcast by Joe Dobbs and Alice Piangalon. Music's by Juanitos and graphics by Chris Beck. Please rate and review on your podcast providers and tell your friends.